that's kind of how I write characters is that um, I keep layering them, um, keep adding, you know, um, histories and, and layers to their personalities so that they become full people. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, um, this is Annie Hartnett. Um, I am the author of two novels, uh, a new novel, Unlikely Animals, and a novel that's about five years old called Rabbit Cake. Um, and yeah, this is Annie Hartnett, and this is Sylvia and me, and I'm so excited to be here. Annie, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, yes, your book, Rabbit Cake, critically acclaimed back in 2017. This new book, Unlikely Animals, um, it wasn't the book that you set out to write. Can you tell us kind of what you were looking to write? Because I know you, you know, you have a love of animals. You could say you're obsessed with animals. But I think the story of how this came about uh, and why you switched to writing this particular story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting story and it's a long story. So I'll try to keep it. Uh, I'll try to condense it as much as I can. But um, so I was writing a novel um, about and this it did kind of get married into the, the current novel. But I was so I was writing a, a not my second novel about a young woman who returned home to take care of her father and um, and became a substitute teacher. And that is very much still what the book is about. But the book did not become fun to write um, until because I had a, I had a actually pretty relatively easy time writing my first book, Rabbit Cake. I enjoyed writing it and I was just miserable writing this second book. Um, and I thought kind of you know, maybe the first one is is the fun one. And after that, it's just kind of a career that you're miserable doing. <laughs> um, Sounds so, like a plan. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm working on it, trying to, you know, move forward, but I'm not not feeling the magic that I had felt with the first. Um, and then I was up visiting friends in in Newport, New Hampshire, um, and we are driving along this road, this forested road with a pond and a covered bridge and not actually many houses in the area. And all of a sudden I see this on this hill, a enormous yellow mansion. Um, and it looks like a really nice hotel with a spa. And I'm like, I want to go there. What is that place? And um, my friends had just moved to the area and they didn't know there were no trespassing signs at the base of the driveway. So I knew it was private property. Um, and so I Googled, you know, enormous hotel, I mean, enormous, not hotel, uh, enormous yellow mansion, Newport, New Hampshire. And I found out that it was, um, a gilded age mill, like robber baron millionaire had, um, had moved retired back to his hometown, Newport, New Hampshire. He had gone to New York and Chicago and places to make his millions, retired back in his, his in his hometown, built this mansion. And that's interesting enough. But then I find out that with his millions, he 
bought up 60 farms in the area and fenced it all in for 26,000 acres total and then shipped in animals from all over the world to make this. Um, it was originally not supposed to be a hunting park, but it became a hunting park. It was originally supposed to be, he said, like all the animals in the world come to live harmoniously. And then the deer exploded. And so they hard started hunting. <laughs> um, so I was fascinated. I felt like I just stumbled across this wonderful history that I wanted to know more about. And then I become even more interested when I find out that the park is still there today and is now owned by 25 um, millionaires who like, you know, each have a parcel of land and have like a club in the park and it's a secret club and and people who live in the town now, most of them have not been inside ever, even if they've lived there for 50 years. Um, so I become really fascinated because I did not want to write historical fiction. Um, I just don't think it would be lend to my talents. Um, so, but I just, I, I tell my writing students to sort of follow obsessions because it leads, obsession leads to interesting places. Um, so I, I go, I start going to the historical society in town, visiting my friends a lot. And, um, and then I find this man, Ernest Harold Baines, who was a naturalist for the park from 1904 to 1925. And he, um, was a real life Dr. Doolittle with foxes in his house and bear in his house and wolves in his house. And, and at that point I was like, well, I got to write about this. This is like why, you know, no one knows about this person who was so interesting. Um, and so, but I still didn't want historical fiction. Um, so he became a ghost in the book. So the father in the book who is, um, who is dying of a mysterious brain disease is hallucinating, but he is also, so there's kind of a, is he hallucinating or is he really um, being visited by this ghost? Well, one of the things that you just mentioned is that a, a true story got you started on this, but you do not um, necessarily write, you don't write you, historical fiction because I know you put a lot of humor in your books. So what I wanted to, to read from, uh, from the book, uh, one of the notes that you have is, and a last note on my research for this novel, and perhaps my most important note, I am not a writer overly concerned with realism, but I am inspired by true events and real life is where all my ideas originate. Now, uh, you know, writers, it's said that you can't, that whatever you write about, when, especially when you're writing a novel, um, a lot of you is in there, a lot of experiences that the writer has had is in there. Now, you've taken your love of animals, you came across this particular park, you came across barns, and you put it all together. So you did not write a historical fiction, a historical uh, novel. What you did was what you say you do and that you take some real life um, events and you work them into your novel. And yeah, I take- Brilliantly in there. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I always say that I, I take things that either really happened to me or things I learn about and like, put them into my imagination machine and it's kind of like a wood chipper it all comes out different <laughs> um 
Well, you talk so. about this young girl, Emma Sterling, who comes back, her father's ill, um, suffering from a brain disease that uh, you, again, you're not going to put it into any real um, illness, but you took uh, different symptoms that could happen with a brain uh, illness. And one of them is hallucinations. And uh, another one is hallucinating animals. And each one of your chapters, you do have Ernest as the ghost, but each one of the chapters, the heading is an animal, whether it be dogs, fox, deer. Uh, how did you manage to get that in there? I know the, you know, the park had all this natural, all these animals on it, and he wanted it to have almost like Noah's Ark. I don't know whether there were two of everything, but mm -hmm. just, you know, a ton of animals. How'd you decide to do each one of the chapters regarding a specific animal? Yeah, so much, since there's so much packed into this book, um, anything that can help me organize it is um, is an asset to me. Um, so I was trying to, I work a lot in with, you know, following a traditional story structure and trying to make a story have three acts. Um, but even with a book that sometimes I get overwhelmed by how long novels are. And so trying to break it up into smaller pieces. Um, I think there's seven animals all told, or maybe there's nine. Um, it, it's dividing it up into those small pieces of like, and then directing of what's gonna happen based around those animals. So each little section is, has its own little climax that is, um, that is, is either like the first section is is just called the cats uh, and and that actually doesn't have the heading but it is sort of sneakily called the cats because you see in the index that it says the cats and there's the big reveal at the end of that chapter which is a three-page chapter so it's barely a um spoiler because it's the first three pages of the book but you find out that clive has been hallucinating cats in his classroom so sometimes there are hallucinations and sometimes it's something that really happens with the deer chapter for example with a real deer um so I think that in some ways that was my way of organizing um, in my, my sort of wild brain um, and using the animals as a sort of structure mechanism to, to make sense of, of what is, what feels like to me, even though it's not a very long novel, um, it's, a, it's a long, long thing, long word document, certainly. <laughs> well, it's packed with quite a bit because not only does Emma come home because her father's dying from this mysterious brain uh, illness, but she is confronted with other issues, her mother's mm -hmm. judgment, her brother's recent stint in, in rehab. Um, you touch, and, and uh, one of her friends is missing, which people are not searching for this person because it's just a young person, you know, she probably just left on her own. So other than her father, no one thinks that anything should be done. So there's a lot packed in there. And you have the narrator, a ghost. Mm -hmm. 
And that's very interesting because I know that one of the things that you've talked about is that a ghost is really, um, you look at it differently than people being, oh, scared, you know, this ghost is coming here to do me harm. But you look at it as a ghost has some unfinished business and would like other people to have a chance at more time. Uh, you even talked about, you know, well, maybe there's a piece of cake that the ghost didn't finish eating um, and now wants to come back. And it's just very, very day-to-day uh, -day things. It's not, it's not a question that they're there to haunt the place and never leave. And through this book, more time is what people are looking for. So can you tell us something about that? Yeah, so it's narrated by um, the ghosts in, in the cemetery in the town. The book is very much, even though it's about this family and a lot of things, it's very much just about this small town, this fictional town that is based on this real town. Um, and so I had had wanted to write a John Irving style novel, and that's one reason there's so much packed in the book, because I like in his novels that there's so many moving parts that then add up to something bigger in the end. And you kind of like think that Owen Meany and Johnny Wheelwright are just playing basketball because they're kids. And then you find out that the end, that it has a big part of the climax. Um, so I wanted to write something like that where there's so many things going on, but I needed, I realized as I wrote a omniscient third person narrator at first that they, the omniscient sort of godlike narrator had too much personality and that's not traditionally the way that an omniscient narrator works. Um, so I was trying to figure out who is telling the story um, and I was at McDowell in New Hampshire, and um, which is where Thornton Wilder wrote Our Town. And I thought, well, there's an idea. Um, is that a good idea? I'm not sure. And then I tried it and I showed it to some friends and they were like, this really works because it tied in the things, like the book is set in 2014. And then, um, and then I'm all, became really obsessed with this, uh, history. And I'm like, who, who would care about both those things, the history and the events of 2014. And so the residents of the cemetery who are very much still part of the town, even though they can't really, um, they, they're, um, the New York Times just called them omniscient yet impotent, um, which is <laughs> a good phrase for it. They can't do much. They, they, um, so they they are sitting there in the cemetery and watching the living like they're like we are on TV kind of and they love the living people um, and then and then they have awareness of that the ghost of Ernest Harold Baines is not a hallucination but is really sitting there next to the man who has is experiencing other hallucinations but the ghost is is really there and so it's it was a, a narration that tied in all the things I was already interested in. Um, in this really um, rewarding way that I, I, if I hadn't been at McDowell and thinking about our town, I don't know if it would have uh, appeared for me, but it, it somehow was a great gift and, and is one reason I think that the book um, succeeds, if you well, think it does, but I think it does. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I agree. Um, it's been described as a tragic, 
comic novel about you know family experiences, um, friendships, good, bad. Um, and as we talk about, you put humor, that's very important to you to include humor in whatever you're writing, even when it's something, I mean, we're talking about a man's dying, um, yet you managed to put humor in. Why is humor so important? I think for me, it's the only way I can get through hard things that is, um, is making jokes of situations or, or is a distraction. It doesn't have to be always, I, I try, I am not a person who ever makes fun of people. I'm more always as a writer interested in like laughing with people than I'm even when the characters are making fun of each other. I'm not laughing as the narrator or as the sort of author at them that I I want to understand things from both perspectives. And I think the readers are smart enough to see, oh, this character has an issue with this person. And so they're making fun of them. But th this character also has a lot going on under the surface that I can see because I get, you know, the extra internal thoughts. And um, so I, it's, um, humor is, is really the reason that I write is I want to make people laugh. Um, it's, it's why writing is fun for me is um, I, ha I come from a family where um, everyone is trying to make everybody else laugh. And I'm sort of the like quiet wry one with the, like the sly comment um, that doesn't always get any attention. So I found that writing is where I get to be funny because that's where the, the humor shines. It's not like, you know, sitting in the corner making the comment that no one hears anyway. Um, so I, and I think it's the way that, um, that we inject hope into a situation which otherwise might feel dire. I totally agree with you. Um, and I think that's why this book is so successful because it does take situations that we wouldn't normally sit back and be able to put humor and you're able to do that in a way that still gives dignity to whatever's going on. Mm -hmm. As you said, you're not laughing at someone you're laughing with, and it's it's a situation, um, which really, especially in today's day and age, helps uh, a lot of people. You also deal with, you know, in, in our time today, you mentioned opioid addiction, and you did some research because you wanted to be able to deal with it um, in a realistic way without putting people down without hurting people. Why was this so important to you to make sure that when you dealt with addiction, you you had in mind, again, what's going on now? You do not write historical uh, fiction, but you you are very aware of what current events are, what's going on, what happened in the past, you do your research. Why was that a topic that uh, you thought really needed to be handled properly and you, you handled it beautifully? Why was that important to you? Um, it was not something I set out to write about um, because I, you know, I always joke, you know, I write dark comedies about 
things we shouldn't laugh about. Um, but I, so it was not uh, something I particularly would want to have said like, oh, I'm going to write a book about the opioid crisis. It just seems like inappropriate, but it, as I was researching this real town and, um, and both being there and then trying to find out what, what articles are written about this town, what sort of the outside world, um, what the Boston Globe has put, why this news, why this town has ended up in the Boston Globe or, you know, in any newspaper. Um, and that is unfortunately one of the like big, you know, uh, news hits you find for the town is, um, is the way that the opioid crisis sort of has um, ravaged parts of these communities. And um, so I didn't um, really the way that it happened is that I I had it as um, a part of one of the characters, um, especially the brother character who has been um, in rehab a couple times. And the novel is already was already before Augie was even struggling with addiction. Um, so much about second chances that I wanted it to be about the ways that um, the dead in the town, the the cemetery, the narrators in the town want more than anything. Like you said, they want a second chance to do something like eat a chocolate cake or go for a run. Um, so they're really interested in the small ways that we can enjoy life more and that they hate that when anyone is cheated out of the longest life they can possibly have, no matter how old um, the person is, because they think like, oh, you know, with one more day, they could have done something amazing, like eat a chocolate cake. Um, the small stuff. So, so for them, they are very upset by the opioid crisis because they really don't like when young people are cheated from many, many, many more days um, because they could do, they could eat so many chocolate cakes. Um, so they are really rooting for everyone to have more time alive. Um, and so it really, it, it came up in the novel uh, through my research of the town, and then it worked with the other themes that I was trying to explore, which is the ways that, um, that an extended life, even by a, a day or a couple weeks, um, is a great gift. Um, so Augie has been through rehab twice, and his mother has just been sort of, you know, waking up every day worried that he's going to overdose. And that's been very, very hard on her. Um, and one reason she's at the end of her rope with her husband at the beginning of the novel, um, because she doesn't feel like he's shown up in the way that she would have wanted him to. He has shown up in other ways, which is something that the novel explores, the sort of unexpected ways that someone can be there for you. Um, so I, I um, the once I realized I was writing about the theme of second chances, um, Augie as a character surprised me as as being someone that um, that was uh, a real like beating heart of the story and uh, the way that he uh, uh, sort of has a second chance and and the research that I had to do was just to make sure that everyone in the story, um, whether it's Augie or any of the characters, feel like a full person with a lot of um, levels to them. So. That's what I do with all my characters. I sort of start with, with one, like the father in the book originally was just a, a poetry professor, but that doesn't tell me enough about a person. Um, and so I always want to make someone more dynamic or more more interesting with more layers. So then he became 
I was listening to a lot of Black Sabbath. Um, so then he became, he was in a Black Sabbath cover band um, and he then he got tattoos. And then, so he was a big personality and a poetry professor. So that's kind of how I write characters is that um, I keep layering them, um, keep adding, you know, um, histories and, and layers to their personalities so that they become full people. So I think that Augie um, in the same way just had to, um, that I had to live with him for a while so that he could, to make sure that he's a, a full person. One of the not things just... that, that you said is writing makes you pay attention to the world in a closer way. And you've just described uh, a number of instances, especially in Augie, how it does make you uh, pay attention to what's around in a much closer way. When we started off, uh, and I asked you about writing this book and where it came from and the fact that you were having trouble writing a second novel. Um, what do you think your next novel, I'm not gonna ask you what it's gonna be about, but do you now, or are you past that thinking where the first novel is easy and the second one is just going to be so difficult and then the third one, have you um, seen by your experience here in writing unlikely, unlikely Animals that it's a process and you're a great writer and you have a lot to say and there's so many stories out there? Well, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think that I learned a lot with the with the second novel and through the past couple of years of teaching people write to, how to write novels and figuring it out at the same time myself is that um that the work is is its own reward and that the it's not think so much about the finished product that you'll get there but to try to the thing that really makes me happiest is to be in the world and so i am i'm trying always to to get back into a new fictional world so i am um I, I am in the right now the promotion um, cycle of of unlikely so I haven't been writing these past couple of weeks but I'm no longer afraid of will I ever write anything again because I've 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 learned that um, that yeah it's it's um, you get I the fear comes from getting ahead of yourself and thinking about when the book is is uh, is out in the world and being reviewed and all that stuff and and what you got to think about instead is that you just focus on the creation and the creation is is actually where happiness comes from. Well, it's, it's kind of like the theme of the book. Mm hmm. Yeah, totally. It, it, just it, chocolate it, cake it, by chocolate cake. That's right. That's fantastic. What type of books do you like to read? Um, I like a little bit of anything. I um, I was a bookseller for uh, several years, and so that made me branch out my reading. Um, and so since then, I've tried to just kind of read what other people are recommending to me and not um, not just try to read books that I know that are up my alley, um, which are, are more maybe, I mean, Kevin Wilson is one of my favorite writers because he's interested in a lot of the same things that I'm interested in, which is uh, finding lightness in dark places, so. Well, Annie, I thank you for, for joining me here today. Um, second chances are 
you know, it's it's especially in today's day and age, it's something that everyone should really think about. And 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 you know, you could be in a dark place, but there's always there's there's a next step and the next step, and you never know. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? And uh, uh, yeah, so I have a website, AnnieHartnett.com, and I'm on Twitter as Annie underscore Hartnett and on Instagram as Annie underscore Hartnett. Annie, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, uh, talk with me today. And um, I can't wait for the next one to come out. Because... Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.